Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. As we continue our crypto native series, today we welcome a special guest who is amongst a growing number of accomplished institutional traders and risk takers having made the move into crypto and Web3. As a managing director and global head of product at GSR, Benoit Busk works daily to expand the crypto derivative market and provide modern risk management solutions to a growing franchise of crypto market participants and token issuing ventures. In addition, he keeps a close eye on projects and protocols within the blockchain and Web3 ecosystems to vet accretive investment opportunities. Benoit always had an interest in crypto, but the opportunity only really materialized in 2021 when he made the decision to join GSR, a prominent crypto market maker and the leader in digital asset derivatives. And despite a challenging last year, he remains undeterred in his belief that this was the right move. In leaving Goldman Sachs, one of the most storied Wall Street institutions, he took a calculated risk on the emergence of a new financial and technological paradigm. One of the main factors in his decision was GSR's reputation and standing, with its founders coming from traditional finance. As a matter of fact, many of his colleagues at GSR and key individuals are also Goldman Sachs alumni, often with a commodities trading background. Benoit himself was a crude oil trader at Goldman Sachs, where he managed the crude oil trading book for the company, first in London and then New York City. Benoit believes that his team's previous experience in managing risk and large institutional client franchises are a major differentiator and a main reason why the firm is still standing amidst the post-2022 rubble. And as he likes to point out, reputation has fast become the most valuable of crypto assets. We couldn't agree more. Benoit graduated from the prestigious and highly selective École Polytechnique in France, specializing in science and mathematics. He found an early interest and aptitude towards quantitative finance, studying under world-renowned professors, which he deepened by attending NYU's current institute in New York City. Benoit began his career as an interest rate product strategist at Goldman Sachs. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in rural France, uh, slightly outside of Lyon, which is the third largest city between Paris and the French Riviera. But really, to some extent, um, it's been an interesting journey that took me from my countryside to Lyon, then successively to Paris, then London, and eventually in New York, where I'm about to celebrate my 20-year anniversary of living in New York City. I'd love to be so geeky as to say, well, you know, my hobby was math. That was my passion. But that's really, as I think, I just felt like this was the thing to do when you're in France, you do math. I was like, okay, then I'll just do math. And turns out that I was okay at it. So I followed up, went to Paris, did an internship in London at Goldman Sachs. And then uh, I went to NYU and joined Goldman Sachs here in New York. And that's where I worked for most of my um, professional life before coming to join GSR. GSR was founded by people from Goldman Sachs, and that's where I had met them. So same thing, like it happened pretty organically, and it was like a natural evolution to join. Specifically, when you first set foot at a bank coming on the heels of what I'm assuming are pretty advanced studies in, in the field of mathematics, and have you studied financial engineering in school, or were you well-rounded in math and sciences in a way that was applicable to your first internship? Had you dabbled in finance before actually setting foot at a bank? So I went to school in Paris at École Polytechnique, which is a French engineering school. On the engineering side, what I'd studied was definitely applied mathematics and economics. And I would say that my first interview at a bank 
was something a little bit surreal because I thought like, I remember emailing with the team I was supposed to interview at saying like, you know, what time do you need me to come on, on that particular day? Not realizing that, and they never answered. So I just showed up at some point, but they were like, okay, we, we thought you were going to come like one hour ago. We have the room booked for you the entire day. And so I stayed there and it was a very odd environment, the trading floor. When you haven't seen it, it's something different. Like, you know, all of those rows and rows of people dedicated, focused, the noise of it, like the, what you develop later, the trading here, hearing what's happening everywhere. When if you, your name is mentioned, even in the middle of the bra, noticing and, and paying attention as a 22 year old, I think coming in, it was just a very odd experience. And I was hooked is what, what I should say. The emulation, I felt like that's something that I want to be a part of education and coming prepared really helped a lot. Uh, at that interview, at that internship, and later on, right? And I continued at NYU with a master's in mathematics and finance, but really it is the foundation of what I learned at Polytechnic with Nicole Kawi, with Ramakont and other on the theoretical side that really helped bring about like, you know, the derivative expertise and framework that I came to really enjoy as a trader. So much to unpack there for anyone who's actually lived through both you and I have sat being interviewed as a junior, as well as we've interviewed people throughout our careers. The one thing about the trading floor is what you don't necessarily realize at first is that everyone is living and breathing the risk throughout the you know, the risk and markets are sort of a living beast throughout the day. And it's not that people don't care about you, especially if you're interviewing, but it can be very intimidating. People have all these things going on in the background and living with their risk. On some level, people gravitate towards these professions, have an appetite for this. And sometimes it's hard to you know, compartmentalize, right? I mean, the person that might have interviewed you that day or the several people who did might have had risk on. They might have had a live conversation with a client. Everything is constantly in motion. So this ability to multitask and think very rationally, mathematically, whilst dealing with the emotions of, of the risk of the client flow is key. The programs that you mentioned, I'm familiar with, obviously, very, very prominent academics that you mentioned, very strong upbringing. What asset class did you gravitate to at Goldman? Did you immediately specialize in a particular asset class? No, and I think that's a lesson to, you know, uh, when you come and you're junior, I would say that again, I tended to follow what was natural and what was a consequence of my earlier studies. So when I joined Goldman, I became a what they call their strategist, a strat, which is also what most commonly people will refer to as a quant. So I became a quant in interest rates because that's where I had interned and that's the people I knew. Quickly, it became obvious to me that I wanted to be more on the trading side. It wasn't necessarily about building the car, but driving it. And I think there's values in both, but you really need to find what resonates within you. In terms of interest, in terms of appetite, and also risk tolerance, as you kind of like allude to. But it's difficult when you're junior because you're kind of thinking, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. That's a good mindset to be hired, but that's not necessarily a good mindset to be successful. You have to find not just what they want you to do, but what you want to do. And when the two align, that's when you can really bring about real success, real positive experiences and positive risk and positive for you and for, for, for the firm. So after 
three years roughly doing that, I wanted to move, but it was time for the financial crisis and there was no trading jobs really in my asset class at the time. So I gravitated to commodities where it was more permeable between the quant side and the trading side. There was more need for some of that sophistication on the derivative side. And so I joined the desk at that time at Barclays as a exotics trader in, in commodities but very junior, obviously. And it was a really fascinating moment. Barclays was coming up as a very strong player in commodities, it was Barclays, Goldman, Morgan Stanley. But really at that time, at that particular window in time, Barclays had a pretty prominent position. And for a couple of years, I learned there and really, again, learned to compartmentalize, but also, which was what at first shocked me in a way when I got on the trading floor, it's living in that world which is different from the world of that i had as a student it's completely like you know being immersed in risk immersed in the trading it's very focused as you say but it's also very much in the moment processing all this data that comes at you from everywhere like you know the market data the clients the flow what's happening and making decision hopefully informed decision but really snap decision often after a couple of years i figured that barclays was fun but really the experience I had had at Goldman had convinced me that this was a, a better place for me where I was, you know, connecting with people better and more. And I rejoined Goldman, this time on the commodity energy derivative side. And that's where I stayed for close to 10 years, a little bit over 10 years before joining GSR, as I mentioned, in 2021. Were there any noteworthy setbacks along the way that you feel helped you grow. And the reason I say this is this is a particularly difficult moment for the crypto industry. And you've joined one of the leading firms, yet you know I think everyone's experiencing the slowdown, the uncertainty. Was there any such a thing during your tenure or was it pretty much smooth sailing all along? No, there's a lot of cycle. Commodities are also very cyclical, much like crypto. And we were coming off, you know, I think on the heels of the great financial crisis, because of all the money that was pumped into the system, those were very good years in 2009, 10, 11, and followed by, you know, this kind of drought of volatility in 2014. I think like the tougher years were 2014, because there was very, very little volatility. And there, that means just directly, you know, less flow, less to do, much like what we saw in crypto kind of like the second half of last year, essentially, in spite of some of the crazier events, we just had much, much lower volatility. 2017, when a lot of other banks also decided to exit the market, that was another challenging year where it wasn't as active. 2020, you had negative oil prices on the financial side, not really on the physical side. But I would say, you know, just to oppose the two, I think what's really challenging, what's really difficult in trading, but in general, is long periods of nothing. Facing a crisis is great. Like when you're in the storm, it's great because this is a short moment in time where you're making decisive decisions that will directly impact the outcome. That's exciting. That's, you know, that's in the moment when there is very little volatility and nothing to do, like those are the time where you need to steal yourself, not make mistake, understand that sometimes doing nothing is the right choice. And, and that's very challenging on the trading desk. The growing up as a trader, 
is understanding when you need to do something and being able to act on it and understanding when it's okay not to do something. And it's very difficult. Like it's difficult, a little bit less difficult where I was on the sell side, very difficult on the buy side where you may have to deploy money. That's part of your job. And sometimes there's just the opportunities are just not there for you to do so. It's so true. And the best trades often are the ones you don't put on. And it's this ongoing pressure of putting up PL numbers every month, which is an arbitrary cadence where your money in a year might be made across two or three events throughout the year. It's funny you mentioned the collapse in volatility and activity at times, especially in oil. I actually traded crude oil options. I actually have a screenshot still of, I think, close to the lows and at the money implied vols in crude oil options around sort of low teens, probably like 13 handle, which is very, very low. And we never revisited that. You're obviously very well prepared to join any trading house. And I think the commodities background of a lot of people within GSR is actually a fit, right? I mean, all the way to the technicals of how crypto works, which is on some level very similar to commodities, whether it's in Delta One products or even options and derivatives. So it sounds like you were well prepared for this. What really triggered the impulse of saying, okay, now's the time for me to jump into the arena? Absolutely. And I think... You know, what's important to understand also for context is that GSR was founded by people coming from, you know, that very desk or surrounding area at Goldman Sachs, a lot of former commodity traders in 2013 uh, helped build the firm, you know, as a, as a liquidity provider for Ripple because of some connections. And it started, I was a former fuel oil trader, Chris Gill, who had left Goldman a couple of years prior who helped start it out of his garage in Malaga. It's one of those garage stories with 15,000 euros or something like that. And um, and, and, and that's really the origin of, of GSR. What's interesting is not so much how it started as much as like, you know, the way it survived. But But again, like we can speak about that later. To some extent, I followed everything that was happening as one of the co-founders, Rich Rosenblum, was sitting next to me on the crude oil desk, on the crude derivative book. And so I had a pretty good insight as to what was happening. And I think, you know, the, the time where crypto became interesting was really around late 2017, when you had the first ICO boom and Bitcoin running to 17, then 18,000. All of a sudden, you know, like it popped on the radar of a lot more traditional finance type, including me. So I started following closer, which eventually rejoined GSR. Like I said, in 2018, 19, you were aware of it, but it didn't seem necessarily like a valid asset class. All of that changes in 2020, at the end of 2020, once you start going from a few hundred billion of market cap to one trillion, two trillion, two and a half. Now you have a critical mass that allows you to do things and to reach outside of your uh, direct community. And I think that's when institutions start paying attention with consequences. Beginning of 2021, you have strategies that seem extremely appealing, like cash and carry that are delta neutral. And very, very quickly, you go to rates that are close to zero there also. And little by little, you can see like all the yields that are normalizing and so on, which it's telling you that some amount of institutional money is flowing in. 
which interestingly also means that we get more correlated to all risk assets. But really for me, this was this initial rally where all of a sudden, as we are having a conversation with Rich, like I said, the co-founder, now maybe the time to jump in and bring about more traditional finance knowledge to, to the firm, more experience and looking at how we expand and how we do that strategically, not just tactically. But I really think the, there's been the crypto community in general has kind of underestimated some of the lessons of traditional finance. And this is how we ended with some of the you know, ridiculous events of 2022. Now we're going to have to look at new protocols, get new ways to utilize and develop crypto in a way that's more conform to what we've seen in traditional finance, because some of those lessons are valuable and we should look to implement because it's very difficult to self-regulate. And if we don't do that, then other people will come and regulate it for us. Agreed. And this is where, to your point, it's starting to emerge as a pattern post-dislocations in 2022 is going back, whether you're advising the newer entrants or more technology-inclined entrants in DeFi who are seeking advice or seeking expertise from TradFi, coming back to first principles. But going back to GSR, is it fair to say that it is a trading firm in the spirit of Glencore's or Trafigura of the world? It seems like the background is in commodities trading and applying the similar structure and approach, having your hands across the value chain of the crypto ecosystem, understanding the flows, understanding where to step in as a speculator, providing risk management, underwriting risk. Or do you see yourselves much more as a Goldman Sachs and being, what is the original ethos there? That's a very interesting question because certainly I think you could draw parallels to either of those. But for us, we've made the, and I think, you know, it was predates me even, but it's been a very voluntary decision to be much more the later, much more the sell side, essentially. Like people coming from Goldman who founded this firm have understood the value of relationship and the value of building an ecosystem. I think GSR precisely is very client facing. We are right now crypto market maker, which banking isn't really the right analogy as we don't deal in securities. And like, you know, it's, it's very idiosyncratic to everything we do, but it's much more relational than it is predatory. We have inscribed ourselves definitely in that direction and decisively in that direction, very conscious decision to be client facing and to be supporting clients. So we are contracted by token issuer to create liquidity for them on various venues, centralized or decentralized. We offer other services on the OTC side, investment side, asset management, but really always with that idea that it is about becoming a comprehensive one-stop shop for the financial needs of token issuers who are our clients primary goal isn't to make to trade of our own capital to trade proprietary it is really to create the infrastructure the service for those protocols with whom we engage so the main target customers and markets who are they that you'll align yourself with and partner with so those would be really uh, token issuer and we have throughout the history of gsr worked with some of the largest and most well-known names i mean we started working with ripple who still have a relationship with us over 10 years now, but also some of the more recent ones. Most of it is protected by MNDA, so you know I'm not disclosing names, but we work with over 
200 uh, token issuers at the moment, which if you think that for it to make sense to require kind of like our services, it's probably among the top 500 crypto. So we have a pretty big market share there. And again, I would really emphasize that because of the way that we've done it, we are looking to last and we are looking for what's happening two, five, 10 years in the future. Not so much like, you know, what's the opportunity in front of me kind of mentality. Our competitors have changed and rotated within the last 10 years. I think for us, it's really been about creating that stability, you know, having the right risk system, having the right security system, security around, you know, protocols, wallet, and the right processes, compliance, and so on. So we look a lot more traditional and we often get that um, kind of commentary, like the adults in the room. And that's that's a kind of, to be honest, kind of stability and support that we're here to provide to those clients. So our goal really is when a protocol approaches us, if they're not listed yet, we'll help them with ancillary services ahead of time, like exchange listing strategy, marketing, legal, potentially tokenomics also. Then once they get listed, we'll provide liquidity by uh, assessing certain like depth and spread on centralized and decentralized venue. This creates a very virtuous cycle of volume, typically, if you get to arbitrage between the two, which in crypto, again, volume tends to be correlated with constructive price action. Once liquidity is established, will help with OTC services to potentially divest in a way that doesn't harm the protocol or the price for founders, investors, early team members. We'll also help with treasury management and asset management. That's kind of like the idea to offer like full suite services. What's very interesting for us is that our relationship evolves with time and typically evolves towards more points of interaction, more reasons to do things together, more partnership. That's very much out of a Goldman playbook. I mean, I know that's not exactly what you're trying to replicate, but I could see a lot of similarities in some of those very, very top franchises where over literally generations have built relationships with issuers and built a suite of offerings that takes them through the journey of the different stages they're at. I'm assuming you would have some filtering as to who you're going to work with. I presume that there are very high quality projects. Obviously, being in the space, I think GSR also is a strategic investor in, in some ventures and protocols. So you're very embedded. You know what's going on. I'm assuming the bar is pretty high in terms of who you're going to start working with. Is that a fair assessment? We have limited bandwidth. And therefore, you know, there has to be a certain selection, as you mentioned. I think to go back on, like, on the investment side, absolutely. Like the way for us where it makes the most sense to invest is if we can be a strategic partner beside just giving money. If there's a way to assist the protocol in its growth, in its development, that makes a lot more sense. On the selection process, we are very attentive to the team, the founders, what they're trying to build. So we look at this a little bit differently than a VC does. The reason why market makers are so important in crypto is essentially because as opposed to what's happening in equities, if the price of Apple or Microsoft fluctuates, your iPhone still works. In crypto, the value of the token is directly linked to the usage of the chain, the usage of the dApp, how this is going to work, how smooth it's going to work. The more value to be extracted, the more you're going to have validators, the more you're going to have people competing for you know, your 
your transaction and it's going to get cheaper and it's going to get better. So there's, there's a direct link here that's very interesting. Like the technology isn't easily separa separated from, from, from the token, the price and the value of the network. And so that's why for us, it's important to be here to support those network and support those partners so that they can focus on the product side of things while we take care of the liquidity. I recall in a previous conversation, you said a token is really like a test tube economics. It's like creating a new economy. Back to your analogy of saying Apple stock is down, technology is still valid, people still use it. Here, there's a mutual induction between the two. The other thing to consider that is highly complex is essentially you're getting some price discovery at a stage in an effort, a project, a business, where the variance of potential outcomes five years down the road is very wide. I think the dispersion of how market participants are assessing the value of the token today and trying to establish what they believe to be an accurate forecast of what that could be worth in five years results in higher volatility. But if I draw some analogy with IPOs, when a company actually does go public, it has gone through a more advanced stage of development, it has procedures, its product market fit is much more established, its revenues have stabilized. Therein lies inherent complexity of both the founders have to deal with this inherent volatility that is now manifested daily in real time. It brings me to a question here. You are aligning yourself with your, your customers and your partners. You do need to make money. What do you think are the risks that you're getting compensated for? As a quant and financial engineer, can you give us a layman's explanation of how the firm, when it is creating liquidity for a token, making money? And I think what's interesting to put in perspective is how market makers work in traditional market. In traditional markets, anyone can market make in Microsoft, Apple, or any of those stocks there is a process for you to go short. So whether you have it or not, you can still show a bid and an offer, which that's the act of market making, and transact on it and then continue. Therefore, they are not contracted or, or anything in any way. You know, and you have Citadel, Virtue, XTX, a lot of large market makers are doing this and doing this very profitably. And the way to make sure that you make money is essentially that because of the way that you're going to buy low and hopefully sell higher on the bid and the offer continuously, you're hoping to capture that spread as the market moves. And hopefully you're doing so in a way that's controlled enough and on the market that's of low volatility or mean reversion enough that you don't get taken out by some of those large moves where you get hit here and then you have to sell much below. Or same thing like, you know, lifted and then you have to buy again much above. So if this was the market in crypto, given the volatility of those assets, you would end up, especially for new assets, with extremely wide bid offer, extremely wide top of book spreads, as we call them, and very little liquidity because you'd be afraid of being taken out. That feature is what we call negative gamma. In digital assets, the model has evolved to allow for markets to function and to be investable towards a different setup where you have those contractual relationships, where you have those contracted market makers like GSR. And what that means is, given that there is no such process for you to be short the token, somebody needs to be able to sell those. Somebody needs to have those. So we get typically a loan 
from the token issuer that allows us to populate the offer side of the order book. We'll use our own capital. That's one of the risks that we take on top of like, you know, exchange credit risk and many other. We use our own capital to create the bid side. We use those tokens that were allocated to us to create the offer side. At the end of the contract, which is typically one year or two years, depending, there will be an option at a much higher premium to repay the loan in dollar. We know that we cannot go below zero, but on the upside, especially in crypto, those things could be very, very asymmetric. You know, you could be depleted of your inventory of token and then having to buy them so much higher. So by creating a ceiling there is how you control that. This also gives you back this gamma that I was talking about, because now you have a scenario where as the token rallies, meaning there is buying pressure, depleting your inventory of your loan. But when you get higher, you know that you don't have to return tokens anymore because now you can return USD, which is readily available. As you go back below, you can repurchase those tokens. And so that movement around this effective strike are how we monetize our option. We are very active all the time, buying and selling constantly. And we represent a large portion of the market share if not the majority of the market share for most of the projects that we are active in. And that is how we monetize our contracts. Would you say that this is something that was a pure innovation or did the firm and its financial engineers actually draw from examples in other worlds? That model came about in 2019, beginning of 2020, and we were one of the couple of market makers that really pioneered, then later standardized this approach. I would say the analogy really is the kind of optionality that exists in a placement phase of an IPO. In crypto, because of tokenomics, which like I think you're making a lot of very good points, like is a way early liquidity event compared to anything that's happening on the standard private equity and public equity side, you end up with a placement that, you know, you end up with a circulating supply that's evolving very rapidly. That's a feature of those, of those markets and something that doesn't necessarily exist anywhere else. Like you get those supply increases, especially now that you're moving to a proof of stake for most protocols and farming and, and all of those other source of yield, in-kind yield, I would say. But basically, this is kind of like the same thing that those investment banks during IPOs will have, where in order to not get caught on like a certain number of tokens, they have optionality at various stages. So it's a very, very similar process, except it takes longer, is, is what I would say. Before that, I think people were looking at retainer, trying to compensate for some of the loss, losses that you'd take on the market making in a more traditional fashion. But that was not creating the right incentive structure. And on top, it is costly for those projects who are token rich and cash poor, typically at first. Therefore, coming up with a structure that's purely token based, that doesn't have any fees, trading fees or listing fees or any of this, that was just a natural evolution. I think it's an incredibly clever, simple, yet very elegant solution uh, to that problem. Who are your main competitors in those activities? I mean, who would you say are the, the main players that you compete against? So Alameda was one, so one less there. Yeah. When I think of uh, the best in class market makers, it's really going to be ourselves, Jump and Wintermute, I think are the, are the largest names out there. Both different from what we do or who we are in terms of philosophy, but also 
history, if I can say, you know, when Jump is much more tied into traditional market, being the crypto arm of Jump trading, you know, they're bigger in the on the VC side of things. They look at it more that way. Wintermute has a lot more prop activities, I would say, on top of it, and involved in DeFi in a different way, as we saw, kind of like sadly, as a result of their hike last year. But again, like, I don't know that they have the same client focus that we do and the same emphasis on those relationships. Like, you know, this is our core business. I would agree with this. And it's something that we've discussed. The current state of the dealer OTC market, where some of the biggest names have been taken under. Think about a genesis that I think probably in terms of franchise focus was probably more on your philosophy than a Wintermute or or jump. And I would argue even a Citadel entering this market is going to have somewhat of a perception challenge in aligning themselves with clients versus a firm like GSR that out of the gate is saying, we are in alignment and we have ways we can make money and make our clients successful. How automated and technology driven is this specific approach? Oh, it's extremely automated. We are connected with over 50 exchanges, although really actively trading on, I would say like 10 to 15 at the moment, especially given the, again, the credit consideration. Wanna make sure that we don't unduly expose our clients to some riskier, I would say venues, especially as I think it was made pretty public around the FTX demise, we decided to, to make our client whole. We didn't necessarily need to do that, but it was important for us that we support our client throughout this catastrophic event. All what we do is highly automated. That doesn't mean that it is static or immutable. We are constantly reevaluating our, our algorithms, constantly reevaluating our strategies, performance. We are in constant conversation and discussion with our clients about achieving the right kind of, you know, dev spread, but also volume, market share, making sure that the liquidity is appropriate. You have to be in touch constantly to just make sure that you're balancing all of those and that you sit at the right spot. Makes sense. Makes sense. So last year was particularly difficult across the space. And I think there are very few players such as uh, your firm that are as uniquely positioned to provide a post-mortem as to what happened. Presumably, you saw all the flows. You were an active strategic investor on the venture side. Obviously, market commentary and relationships are very important in your business. So you are a very well-informed participant in the market. Can you explain in simple terms what led to the waves of sell-offs across digital assets last year? I think that's a good starting point to understand what happened before we get into hearing your vision for what the future should look like. I would say there were two main waves of event. The first one was in May-June around Celsius, Terra, BlockFi. And the second one in November with FTX and followed by Genesis. The first one, I think, was very similar to something we saw during the great financial crisis, which was hidden leverage exiting the system. You had a repricing for tokens, including BTC and ETH, that was pretty violent. But, you know, again, like we went from 
69,000 to about 40, 45, 40. And through that, what happened is that you had a lot of leverage that was hidden in the system through those landings. I want to say protocol, but those were not protocol. You had landing firms. You had, you know, it was a lot of centralized player at the time, as was pointed out, because again, like the code worked, there was issues around redemption and margin calls that led people like more time for situation to, if anything, worsen. But basically, one dollar could be used to create a pool somewhere and then like the, it could be allocated to borrow something and then create $1 on something else. So the TVL was demultiplied and $1 ended up turning into 10 on different venues as you started doing those transactions and you just had a lot of concentrated risk that people didn't necessarily see as a result. Certainly, I think Terra and UST was one search where like the landing place for all of those leverage flow to get those kind of return. The sustainability of this protocol started becoming apparent that it wasn't going to work as soon as it started depegging. And all of a sudden you had this panic. And I think the same thing happened with BTC versus GBTC. Immediately as you started having those positions where one side wasn't necessarily liquid and you know people had traded them like pair trades. So that was to me the first wave of the cycle when liquidity exited the system and really leverage collapsed and you had all of those liquidations pretty dramatic. That was a very bad event. Then the second one, really with FTX, that's a that's an entirely different thing. It's still a follow-up to this first, you know, consequence of those first events that we were not necessarily aware that some players have been improper in their dealings. And but what you don't know is that how long some organization can survive while being already insolvent. There is Almost no doubt now that FTX and Alameda were probably insolvent at that time. Uh, and yet they continued to uh, try to bid for BlockFi, try to do things. I was in the Bahamas at the FTX conference last year. And I, like everyone, I think in our space, most people in our space, thought like there has to be something. And I think it came to an abrupt halt in November after what some people are trying to portray as CZ triggering the whole thing, but I really don't think anyone thought the things were the way they were, that this would create, like, you know, start this snowballing effect, this collapse of this entire multi-billion dollar exchange, one of the top three exchanges in the world, with a trading firm that everyone suspected was highly profitable. Again, like I said, it was one of our competitors on many deals. And while we always thought it was odd to have such a conflict of interest as to have an exchange linked to a trading firm, but like to see this monumental collapse and how it was devastating for so many people, so many real people, real lives destroyed, to me, that was criminal. That's a completely different scale of things. That's where I think we really need protection. The absence of those is what's preventing further institutional adoption at this stage and what's probably going to cause regulations to happen. And when they do, I really hope, because I think they can be really good regulations, but there is a risk that we create conditions which are going to make it much more difficult for crypto to thrive. I think it's important to give people the details. And again, there are very few professionals out there who sit in the seats that you and your colleagues at GSR sit and are able to really get the full picture of what happened through relationships, through market flows, through an understanding, a very thorough understanding of the mechanics behind those markets. 
And the other thing I will say is your firm is still standing. I'm assuming there was a business impact. Obviously, it would slow down. You said that volume and activity in crypto is very directional, right? Uh, things tend to, people get involved when things go up and not so much when they're, when they're down. But your firm actually survived. From my perspective as a portfolio manager, I think in terms of credit risk and diversification of the credit risk. And it seems to me, even though you had to make whole some customers that were impacted, that likely the reason you were able to do so is because whatever ultimately counterparty risk is essentially a type of credit risk, right? That you had a diversified enough approach in your business that the hit that you took on deposits on the exchange at FTX was small enough that it didn't take your whole business down. Similarly, if you think about what was taking place in the OTC lending through centralized finance entities throughout the year and the cascading liquidations that occurred when the deleveraging started in, in the spring, the firms that went down were the ones that did not apply first principle of when you have exposure to credit risk, the number one thing you need to do is to diversify it away, to diversify away the idiosyncratic risk. If you think about firms that had abnormal exposures to three arrows, for example, that is a case study for a overly concentrated risk. I viewed it as a very, very large carry trade that was highly concentrated in terms of its exposures. If you think about a portfolio of credit and, and loans, it is a carry trade, but it's diversified across many, 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 many different carries. In this case, I think there was an overall concentration in certain risk and certain counterparties. And I think the, the firms that did well, whether it's on the hedge fund side or, or trading side, actually diversified and applied this long time-tested experience in risk management, which I think is not only important today, but it's going to be important on a going forward basis. And I would think your counterparties, as they consider doing business with you, this is something that allows you to differentiate yourselves. Talk to us a little bit about the impact that the current winter is having on your business. How difficult has this phase been and how are you guys thinking creatively around finding new opportunities, engaging players, and also funding the future? I'll just go back for one second. I completely agree with what you're saying. It's about diversification, but also about mitigation. And I would say that obviously we lost uh, some funds on FTX. It wasn't, as you mentioned, business or life-threatening for, for a firm. So we have a great chief risk officer, John Laughlin, who comes from traditional finance, used to be equity derivative portfolio manager at, at a couple of very large funds and successful funds. And when he joined, similarly in 2021, he started applying a very systematic methodology to identify and isolate and then eventually allowing us to mitigate some of those credit risks. So when you're dealing with a place like FTX, which is known for not having disclosed any of their financial or anything, then you keep your exposure to a more limited number. I am hoping that we are mostly out of the woods, but I do think it isn't clear that there isn't any other zombie firm or insolvent firm out there still at the moment, and that those names wouldn't be shocking to most people. For us, it is about rebuilding trust. And I think trust and the assumption of integrity certainly was damaged during the past year. So we want to reestablish again to our client that we're here. Making people whole was one of those steps. We're still here and we're still providing services, even in times like this. What makes me really hopeful is that this rally that we're seeing has brought us back to pre-FTX 
but I do see the potential for crypto, which hasn't really existed in an inflation context, to do really well and to finally decorrelate from some of those other assets, especially as allocators come in this year and are looking for assets with asymmetric upside. There's not so much asymmetric upside these days in equities or fixed income, but it remains in crypto. Like those are assets that can do 10, 50, 100x. There's not many out there. And so I think we're going to see more inflows. You're seeing a lot of interest on DeFi primitive. Some very exciting stuff happen for some DEXs. You're seeing GMX, DYDX, like rallying massively. You're seeing a lot of interest in new layer ones. I think Aptos definitely has caught everyone's attention. You're seeing even layer two competition eating up with Polygon or Optimism. It's a pretty exciting time when you go back to those problematics. You can focus away from some of the problems that we've had to some of the problems that we want to solve. Let's take aside regulation for a second, because I think it's it's one topic that's over-commented on, and obviously it's prime and, and front and center in a business like yours. But let's just take that aside. In terms of end user adoption. What do you think stands in the way to create the next wave of bull adoption? What are the features, capabilities that you look for in the ecosystem with new builders? Or where do you try to steer them from your vantage point to try to get them to think in terms of user adoption and away from just pure speculation? That was the 2021 model. It's, we are good, we're good enough, we're disrupting. We don't need any of the existing models. We don't need any of Web2, almost a bad word. We are going to be build our own thing, our own experience, our way. And that's when you have like yield farming and so on. And you really try to get people in through speculation and greed, which I think works for a time. And we saw its limits, certainly. But... The next phase for me isn't about that. And the, one of the topics that we haven't really discussed is NFT, gamification, GameFi, you know, play to earn, or even just entertainment with, you know, celebrities, social aspects, social networks, the music, film industry. I think all of those are going to be revolutionized like by this new paradigm. I can get easily addicted to games, so that's why I try not to be a gamer, but um, I used to. The idea that you could transfer status or money or items between games, between platforms, it's just revolutionary. The idea that you could take money out of a game. I've only ever put money in games, so this would be <laughs> this would be a new one. All of that is going to be very interesting, especially as the new flavor is to make it seamless and to work on the UI UX. I think you want to have that Web 2 experience, but with Web 3 Rails where you're going to be able to do just so much more and unlock a completely new dimension to playing, to entertainment that wasn't there before. It's a, a very good laboratory for what could become. I think it's a very vibrant part of the market. To your comment about tokens and digital assets being these economic subsystems, one can draw a lesson that if you do create the conditions for one-click adoption, one-click access. You know, still, the gaming industry on Web3, the onboarding is oftentimes a five to 10-step process. Things like pushing down some of the core interoperability features, liquidity features down at the infrastructure level so that you don't have to rely on bridges. You don't have to wrap tokens as much as you, know, you do today, which is 
completely inaccessible for the majority of users. Solving for these things, and there are a lot of initiatives down at the infrastructure level, at the application level, that are all working towards that. So I'm personally encouraged. I think it's going to take a while, but I think the message has sunk in that now that we're in this quest for user adoption, product market fit, in a way that's not entirely dependent on these extensive reward programs, let's face it, customer acquisition tokens um, that existed, I think we're going to see the best of the ingenuity of builders. And hopefully we can get and align ourselves with that. I think as investors, as believers in the space, I think it's very important. My last question is, are you guys worried about existing large financial players as the regulation picture clarifies entering your space? Or do you view new entrants coming in and filling in the void of, let's say, a Genesis today? Do you think there's room for other participants in the dealer market? Or do you think the market is not big enough? I'll take it as a very positive sign if some of those larger traditional players come in. I think we are in a phase where we should all be thinking about growing the pie and growing together. This isn't yet like the what's happening in equity markets or other where you're fighting for a slightly larger piece of an ever-shrinking pie. This is cooperation. This is co-competition, if you want, in crypto. Market makers, those competitors of ours, those are our friends that we talk to every day. Like, you know, the entire space is a community. And I think, you know, in, in crypto, everyone is building, be it on the infrastructure level, be it a token, be it a protocol, be it, you know, the next new shiny thing. Everyone is building together and, you know, we want to be a good actor. We're hoping everyone is a good actor, but certainly like, you know, anyone new that wants to enter the space will help you. I'm really glad to hear you say this. I think our assumption for all of us who believe in it is that the pie eventually will be much, much larger. So might as well collaborate. They say, if you want to get things done fast, do it alone. If you want to go to distance, build a team. And so I think to your point, it's going to take collaboration around standards, around interoperability, agreeing about transparency in financial markets and risk-taking. So I think this is a very healthy perspective. Overall, I'd say my takeaway from this conversation is your firm has stood the test of time. Certainly, I'm assuming last year was not an easy year, but you've gone through a few cycles. And the perspective that you bring is one of clarity, but also persistence. I don't think you're deviating from your core principles, core mission of alignment with customers, the types of businesses that you want. I think you're very solidly anchored to the token economy, and that's encouraging. And the space needs to have a backbone, and you're doing so with a team of individuals who are very experienced and are going to help the industry navigate you know, future challenges. So I view this as very encouraging. I'm glad we were able to, to chat today. I've drawn a lot from this conversation. I hope our listeners will as well and understand that you, know, you are one of the leading, more serious players in the space. And I look forward to staying in touch and, and certainly good luck in the, in the months to follow with uh, continuing to build the business. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management, LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor.